You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to a new episode of Delirious Nomads, brought to you by Blacklight Media Records, a weekly podcast hosted by yours truly, celebrity chef Chris Santos, I hate calling myself that, and underground metal connoisseur Matt Bacon, who loves being called that. This is your new favorite podcast for all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports and riffing on some food talk every week with very special guests from across the globe. All right, so we're back after our holiday hiatus. Um, and I couldn't be happier starting off 2022 here at on the Delirious Nomads podcast with a bang, starting with absolute rock royalty. This gentleman, uh, you know, I'm reading some notes here, but but I've known him for a long time, so I probably don't need the notes. But he's a very well-known American uh, t- uh, television host, disc jockey, music executive, um, and reached national prominence as a VJ on MTV all those years ago when MTV played music. He is a, he literally is a rock legend. Um, anybody. Uh, in the industry, everybody in the industry knows and respects this gentleman. He's my good friend. We want to welcome Matt Pinfield to the podcast. Hello. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. What's going on, Chris? How are you? How you doing, Matt? How are you guys today? I'm great. You know, so a couple of years ago, I launched a little record label with Brian Slagle from uh, Metal Blade. And this is uh, kind of an offshoot of that record label. And we've had some really great guests. Uh, we did about 30 podcasts last year. And uh you know, really some great, great guests. Um, but uh, I'm super excited to chat with you because we don't get to do it enough. I haven't seen you in a while. And there's, and there's you know, as, as much as I know you, I, you know, I got questions, you know, I, I got questions. Yeah. You know, it's amazing, Chris, because, uh, you know, I, I was so psyched when you started the label and, you know, talked to you about, you know, like I like that band Capra a lot that you have on the label. And there's some really cool stuff there that, you, you know, you have. But I remember... You know, you and I meeting for the first time, which was really cool on the May at the Mayhem Festival. Yep, yep. And that's when we hung out. We were hanging out uh, down at what used to be called the Garden State Arts Center. I don't know. Is it called the PNC Bank Arts Center? Yeah. Everything yes. changes its name every minute. I was at the L.A. Kings game the other night. Now it's the Crypto.com uh, arena instead of the Staples <laughs> Center. So, you know, it's like the third party sponsor thing. Nonetheless, it's a great venue in Jersey that's just shed there. And then yep. you and I hit it off right away. I was like, man, yep. I really love this guy. And because uh, you were a total rock fan. I mean, you loved rock and metal. So immediately we had that connection, which I thought was yep. really cool. Yep. And that, and then, so what came first? The, the chicken or the egg? With, did, did your daughter start working with me before that? And then why we happened to meet? Or did, or did, did she start working for me because we met? 
No, I she guess. started working with me at, because we met afterwards, which was so cool. My daughter, Jessica, you know, who's doing great now. She just did a, won a lot of awards for this independent short film she did called uh, Red Giant. And you've been, you were so great to her always, Chris, which meant the absolute world to me, you know. As a dad of two daughters, you know, I love my kids so much. And, uh, you know, it was super important to me. And you always treated my daughter with such so well. So I want I will always thank you for that, my man. Oh, well, she's a peach and, and, and I miss her very much as well. All right. So let's get into your life, man. So, you know, for, for those listening that may not know, you know, it would take hours and hours and hours to, to kind of go through this this gentleman's career. And we don't have hours. We have about 35 minutes. Um, but I guess I want to know, you know, you kind of and correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of broke big when when you started um, hosting 120 minutes back in the day at MTV. But let's go all the way back. I know you started as a DJ, but even even before that, like why? You know, what drew you to music? What drew you into this world? You know, I love music from the time I was a kid. And what I my earliest memories of sitting in front of a little little record player. You know, my father was a school teacher in Jersey. I lived in this little town called Denellen first. I was born in Athens, Georgia, you know, the town that University of Georgia, Bulldogs, REM, B-52s, all that. That's, I was born there, but I was raised in New Jersey where my parents were from, you know. And my earliest memories of being like three or four years old are sitting in front of a, a used record player they bought from neighbors, you know, because we didn't, have, you know, they, my parents didn't have a lot of money. Uh, they had three kids. And, uh, so it was about buying 45s when I was a little boy and like listening to, you know, Beatles, Stones, you know, all of that. And uh, but I I was also really fascinated and loved radio. I mean, because I loved rock and roll and I loved cool old soul music in the 60s and 70s, obviously. So I was just into rock. And um, from the time I was a young kid. So, you know, it was always a dream for me to do radio. When I was really young, you know, I mean, people would not realize how little access or opportunity you had. You know, I talk to people all the time who started in radio, you know, when they were like, you know, 16, uh, because they were in markets where they'd hire pretty much anybody at any age. But I grew up between the Philly and New York markets, so it was really hard to break into radio when I was a kid. But um, my father, who was like a physics teacher, he actually... Uh, bought, he helped me, you know, like he knew I wanted to be a DJ. So he found this, this catalog at the high school where he was in East Brunswick, New Jersey. And he realized they had an AM transmitter there. He told me about it and he ordered this thing and then we built it together. I mean, I basically followed his thing. So we would make do radio shows from my basement when I was like a 10 year old kid. Wow. You know what I mean? Like nine, 10, you know, what he, it was literally this, you know, we had like beat up we a cheap Radio Shack mixer two beat up turntables and uh, and records. And I would have all my neighborhood friends over when we weren't out like playing war or baseball or whatever, or throwing a football around or just like tearing up the neighborhood being, being punks. Uh, when we were little kids, we were riding our bikes on a, on a rainy, snowy day in New Jersey. We would end up, you know, doing radio shows in the basement. And in those days, you know, most DJs, didn't really go under their real names. My name is actually my real name that I go under. But in those days, everybody had like a fake name, like Cousin Brucey or whatever it was, Wolfman <laughs> Jack. So I gave everybody fake names and all my friends, I made them all DJs. I told them like how to DJ in my basement. And we had a, it was hooked up to our TV antenna. The, uh, you know, the transmitter went up to that wire. So it broadcast like a block on AM, you know, but we <laughs> thought we were hot shit. You know, we thought we were cool because 
We had a radio station that broadcast a block. We're like, hey, man, you can hear it. And someone would run down the street with a transistor radio or in their parents' car, and you could hear this on the radio. <laughs> so that was humble beginnings, but it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, then I got involved in college radio at Rutgers. And, you know, the thing was, I always, and you'll appreciate this, Chris, with being a lover of metal and of rock. My own thing with radio when I was a kid growing up was as much as I loved it, I was like, man, they're not playing these other bands that are great. You know, I'd go out to record stores and I'd see a cool looking album by a band that you didn't hear, never heard on the radio before. And, you know, that could be when I picked up the first Aerosmith album or a kid turned me on to Kiss or, well, not the first Aerosmith album, it was the second when I bought it. But, you know, just rock bands over the years, UFO, you know, Rush. I mean, you know, Queen, you know, in that period of time, and radio was never quick enough, in my opinion, to expose these new great bands, you know, bands I love, like Thin Lizzy. I mean, there's, there's a whole list of them. So I was like, I really wanted to get into radio so I could turn people on to new music. So my first opportunity was doing a radio show at 16 at the Rutgers radio station, even though, you know, at a pledge drive, I did a show and they're like, man, hey, you're actually really pretty good. And that was a period where, you know, things were kind of changing over from, you know, where like the post-punk thing was happening and, you know, you know, uh, thrash metal. It was cool because we we're playing stuff like that and nobody else was playing at the time. College radio was a, was a really a great incubator place for me. And I was spinning in rock clubs like I was spinning in rock clubs. And that's literally, you know, how I uh, supported my daughter, who, you know, who worked for you, Jessica, when I was younger. I mean, I, I just had a big club following. So I would be spinning in these rock clubs. And I did that for many years until there was a radio station on the Jersey Shore, uh, which was HTG, which was a kind of a freeform rock alternative hybrid. And uh, I got a gig there working on weekends. And I did that and clubs until I got a full time gig as a music director at that station. And then things opened up for me, like things the record industry started to realize, hey, there's this guy who really loves music and he's not looking for reasons not to play bands. He's looking for reasons to play them. And uh and within a year, I won this National Music Director of the Year Award, too. And then I won it back-to-back years, which had never happened in a, uh, in a market as small as Asbury Park. You know what I mean? It was always like L.A., Chicago, Detroit, Los Angeles. So people were like, who is this guy? So that was a beautiful thing for me that I, you know, all of a sudden, you know, it was, as a lot of people would say, a breath of fresh air because I was just excited to break new bands and artists. And that's how things started to happen. And it's from that radio station on the Jersey Shore that I got the opportunity to, to fill in at MTV and eventually become manager of music programming there. So, so tell us about that. Like, so MT, MTV contacted you? Like, how did, how did they? Yeah, it's kind of a crazy story how it all went down. Like, um, it was really cool. I, of course, you know, uh, the shows I liked were Headbangers Ball, 120 Minutes, the late night, you know, shows. Those were what I was into. And, um, you know, I would, uh, you know, once I became music director at the station and people found out what I what I was doing. Plus, there were people that worked in the MTV music department that lived either in like lower Manhattan or Staten Island or parts of Long Island where you could actually get the station because we were by the water on the Jersey Shore. We didn't have a big antenna, but in certain places you could pick up the station. And it was certainly a lot fresher than what was going on on New York radio. You know what I mean? Um, so people knew about the station. And I met some of the MTV people out at a gig. Like I was seeing a band. 
And we started talking. They go, oh, man, we like your station. And then a friendship with the music department started with some of those people in the music department, a guy named Kurt Steffick, and then everybody else there. And we ended up like, they started saying to me, you know what, man? We're going to start tracking records with you because we get hyped on everything to get played on MTV. But we know you're not going to lie to us and you're going to give us a read of whether records are really working, whether those bands are really like people care or are or, or reacting to that band or that record in your market. And we love to know, get, get a real read because we're getting hyped by everybody. You know, the labels tell us, oh, this is happening. This. So they, they go, we'd like to include you as part of our research. And that's how it really started. So I, there was a friendship that started there with them. And uh, one day, in 93, I guess it was or 92, I, I end up, I see in a music or radio trade, it's like a magazine, you know, basically, you know, uh, it, it, you know, it has the charts every week for all the formats. And there's a thing there that says that Dave Kendall is leaving as host of 120 Minutes. And I just called up Kurt Steffick, knowing that he programmed the show, who was a guy that I, you know, reported what was going on in rock and alternative to. And um, I go, Kurt, what's the deal with with Dave Kendall, man, uh, what happened? What's, what's going on? He goes, oh, they blew him out. And I go, oh, man, I'm sorry to hear that. But I go, you know what? And I just say this, man, totally naive, not cocky, just like, I mean, it literally came out of my head. I said, dude, you know, you need somebody like me to host the show, like somebody that would knows the artist, knows the music, and is, in, is really into the history, too. And he goes, you know what, man? And this is the funniest thing in the world, right? Because you know how long I've been doing radio and TV, right? Back then, he said to me, I don't know if you'll still be in the demo, <laughs> which is pretty <laughs> funny, right? I don't know if you'll still be in the demo like I'm already too old. But he goes, uh, but I'll tell you what, I'll get back to you in a week and I'll kick the idea around. So I'm like, well, that's all I can ask for, right? So then the next thing you know, I get this phone call an hour later and they say, uh, hey, man, you know what? They want you to come in for an audition. And I was like, holy shit, I can't believe MTV's going to give me an audition? I, wow. So, um, 120 minutes of Bangers Ball, as influential as both of those shows were, were not high priorities in the, in the channel, believe it or not, in programming, even though they, historically they're so important. So it took like a month or two, like a month and a half, for them finally to like put the time aside to get me into audition. So I went in, I wore a shirt with like a fucking rip in it, man. I was, you could tell I was a radio guy. I was never been, <laughs> never been on TV before. I, I shirt with a rip in it. And I was like, kind of like a deer in headlights, I think, the first time. But I just went with my confidence of my love of music. And because I've been doing radio for quite a while, I mean, I could talk, that's for sure. And I went in. I had to tell them why I thought I'd be a good host for the channel. And I was a little cotton-mouthed, you know what I mean? Without, And I'm not even smoking weed, just cotton-mouthed because of nerves. And, right. uh, and um, I did the audition. I did a bunch of test throws throwing to songs. And uh, and then just waited to hear. And all of a sudden, I get a phone call, and they say, Depeche Mode's coming in, and they don't want to host. At this point, they had, like, artists hosting 120 Minutes uh, after that Dave Kendall go. And a lot of them, some of them were, like, good in front of a camera, and some obviously were not. So, Or it just wasn't their, their thing. Um, so I went in there. I did the show with Depeche Mode. A little bit nervous, but, I, but I, you know, I went through it. Ended up watching it like a like that week, and then I got a phone call from them saying uh, this. There was this English woman who actually was in head of the VJs, and she goes, "It was pretty fun." She goes, 
Hey, Ma, you, she left me a message. You did a great job with Martin Bohr. She called him Martin Bohr. And the thing was, he was just burned out that day. So when him and the singer Dave Conn from Depeche Mode got there, like Dave's engaged with me during the interview. And Martin McGore's looking off to the side. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, Martin, look at me, man. You're going to kill this gig for me before it starts. It was like <laughs> nerve-wracking, man. It was unbelievable. I'm like, Jesus Christ, this guy's going to destroy my fucking gig. And, um, <laughs> and sure enough, it was unbelievable. He finally came around, but he looked like he was in space for a moment. And, you know, for years, we're friends now. I, bust, I used to bust his balls and go, Martin, you almost killed my fucking TV career. He goes, oh, man, I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm just fucking with you, man. It's good. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know? And then what happened was, this is a crazy story because this is like, I was told, you know, like they weren't interested, just never hear from again, them again. So I get a call from Andy Schoen, you know, who was the head of talent and music. And uh, he says that they want to meet, meet up there with me. And I'm like, oh my God, maybe I got this gig. This is one of those, those moments where your heart sinks into your balls. You're just like, oh my God. So I get up there, guys, and I'm thinking, well, maybe he wants me to, maybe he want me to fill in. Or, or maybe they want me to do it like or switch off with somebody else. Or maybe, who knows, maybe there's an opportunity there for me. I mean, I thought, well, they're bringing me all the way up there. It's got to be good news, right? So I get to the offices of MTV and they go, hey, Matt, you did a great job. But we're going to give the show to Lewis Largent for now because he's our VP of, uh, of music programming. And we want to give him a little bit more of a profile. But we'll use you as a backup. And, you know, you'll, you'll be on our list. And I'm like... You can imagine, guys, the fucking feeling that dropped down into my gut at that moment. And uh, I remember I had to do another interview for Geffen Records with another rock band and do an album special for them. And how I felt when I left the MTV building, walking up the street like somebody had just died. You know what I mean? It was like, oh, my God. Well, nonetheless, you know, I stayed in touch with them like I had done before. And then all of a sudden, I get a phone call. Hey, we are changing. Some people are leaving the music department. This is like a year later. Um, you know, and it's like, I never let them forget me. Like I never harassed them or anything like that, but I would always, I, I blow a call into Andy Schoen, the boss every once in a while, still in touch with Kurt and everybody in the music department. And eventually I, they call me and they say, uh, Hey, we want to interview you to be one of the, be a manager of music programming. So that's what happened. I got that job. I left the radio station and I um, ended up being one of the people that picked the music videos and worked on the unplugs. And uh, all that other stuff. And, you know, it was pretty amazing that I, I but I, I got to be honest with you, Chris, I thought I was never, ever going to be on the TV or radio again. And I was really careful to like my last radio show on in Asbury Park, even Bruce Springsteen was listening. Right. I remember, you know, he was like literally listening and told me that later on. I went on for eight hours because I thought that was my radio swan song. Like I was done. Like and I'm going to work behind the scenes from now on. And. And I was all right with that because Jessica was, a, was you know, a young girl. I wanted I had to take care of my daughter. I needed to make a move, you know, like the radio station. I'd taken that as far as go. We went like Rolling Stone, medium market station of the year, voted by, by listeners in Rolling Stone. You know, I'd won those two national radio awards. So I was like still working like two or three jobs because it was a mom and pop station. I needed, needed, you know, to do something new. And of course, the opportunity to be at MTV and programming, picking music for that for like the rock and alternative shows was, and even the hip hop shows was cool. So I, um, I went and did that never again, expecting to be on the TV or radio ever. And, uh, I get there and I'm working there a few months. And, um, one day they just go to me, Hey, you were pretty good that day that you were on Oasis are coming in and they don't want to, uh, they don't want to, they don't want to host. They, so you're going to do it. 
They go, I'll tell you what, we're going to give you three weeks to be on the air and we'll see how it goes. So at this point, guys, I'd already been like, I got to tell you this, Chris, I'd already been around the studio as like what they call TNR talent relations. I'd been on the road, done all this stuff. So I was like, I, I got to be honest with you. I didn't care whether it worked out long term or not. I was excited that I was going to get to be on the air again, but it I, I just never wanted to confuse my bosses there that I had a hidden agenda to be mm. on TV because I didn't, you know, like, sure, I would have liked to have been, but I was accepting. I had that acceptance that, well, that part of my life might be over, you know, like, I mean, you know, radio, TV, whatever. Now I'm behind the scenes, which was OK with me. And then I went on and killed it with Oasis because I didn't give a shit. Like I was and I was having fun with them, busting their balls, having a good time. Just like I would hanging out with some guys. And then he turned around and said to me, we do a complete 180. The show is yours. <laughs> and so, which is unbelievable. So after that first week, then the next thing you know, I'm hosting 120 minutes for a while. Crazy things happen. Cameron Crowe reaches out. It, it ended up not happening. Um, but, uh, you know, because of scheduling, but I thought it was a joke. He wanted me to do a part in Jerry Maguire. And I was like, yeah, sure. That's going to be Cameron Crowe's people. So I called up this guy I know who knew him. I said, some assholes pretending he's Cameron Crowe. And he calls him up. And goes, no, that was Cameron Crowe. So after I was on the air for three weeks, he wanted me to do a small part. But I couldn't get out there. That's the part Jerry Cantrell from Allison Chains did is the Kinko's guy oh. in that. Yeah. So, you know, so then everything changed, you know. And what was really crazy about it was I think it was as much of a surprise to them as it was to me that they would do research um, and check out what people thought, you know, whatever research systems they used to find out what people thought of, of hosts and VJs on the channel. And all of a sudden they came back with this huge, what they call Q rating. I wasn't even completely aware of it until Tom Freston, the chairman of MTV Networks, got married and the president said to me, you know, you're our highest, highest rated VJ ever with the least burn. She goes, but I don't mind telling you because I know you won't try to put us over a barrel. <laughs> she was right. <laughs> But I like, but I, when I did get these inklings, it was weird. Like, you know, all of a sudden, I'm not just this guy who's like known in New Jersey. And, uh, but I just love what I did and I love being around music. So I got to continue working and picking the videos and doing the show at the same time. And it was just, just an incredible experience to be there when in the 90s, when it was still about rock and alternative and even gangster rap. Like, I mean, it was just an exciting time. There was a lot of stuff happening. And, um, but, I, all of a sudden, I'm walking in the hallways, and you know, the guys from Yom TV Rap stop me and go, hey, dude, the Black and Spanish community's feeling you, man. And I go, really? That's fucking great. And I was just like, that was a beautiful thing. I mean, I, they said that, and I was... All of this stuff came as, like, unbelievably pleasant surprises. Like, the first time that somebody stopped me on the street, they, I, I'm talking to them for a minute. I go, yeah, you know, how you doing? I'm doing good. I go, so how are things back in New Jersey? How's things at the club? Are you good? And they go, we're not from New Jersey. We're from Ohio. And I'm like, oh, shit. Okay. That's all of a sudden it dawned on me. Oh, wow. People are actually seeing me across the country. It was one of those things. And, you know, but, but I mean, for me, I never lost sight of my, you know, my true reason for being there, my love of music. And for the, I always had the same, you know, you know, for me, it was about exposing new artists and giving artists a leg up, you know, and, and that was why it was such a great time where, you know, there's a lot of artists that we, we know and love and got really big that I went in there and fought for them to get buzz clips. Cause in those days to get a buzz clip meant you could go from like selling 60 to a hundred thousand records to a half a million. If you know, if it, if it connected even bigger, 
And they did it for, there were a lot of artists who got to do that for, because I was doing that at radio anyway. And I always had it in my, I was the kind of guy, like even when I was spinning records at a club, like, you got to hear this band. It goes back to high school, junior high, bringing records in. You know, it's the same thing. So, you know, I kind of never lost that optimistic love and that youthfulness of, uh, you know, getting to turn people on to new music. It's still super And you had two separate um, stints, not stints, but you had two separate runs. You were there there in the 90s, and then did you come back in the 2000s? Yeah, I did. Well, yeah, it's a really interesting story because there were a couple different things that happened. Like, first of all, I think I should also say, like, 120 Minutes wasn't the only show. Like, what happened? They also, they tried to do something like Headbangers Ball that didn't work while I was not on the air there yet, called Super Rock or something. So when they realized that I was a big rock guy, not just an alternative guy, that I like, I worked in both worlds because I mean I loved rock and metal too. So they were like, "Hey man, we're going to relaunch a version of, of Headbangers Ball. We're just going to call it Matt Rock." And they thought it was funny to call it Matt Rock, like Matt Rock, like the uh, mm-hmm. Andy mm-hmm. Griffith TV show. But the graphics that were on that thing looked so cool that people that remember watching it will remember that it was a great show, that it really was. It was Headbangers with a different name. But the thing that was funny about it is, for years, people have said to me, Matt Pimville, Headbangers Ball. And I don't, I stopped correcting them because I don't want to kill their buzz, their moment. You know what I'm like? Because it was Headbangers Ball with a different name because it was the truest show to Headbangers Ball. You know, uh, to, you know, what, what it was done before Ricky and people like that. It was that. It was me on the tour bus with Metallica and going to shows and, you know, going around the country with Metallica and Ozzy. And, and at that point, Corn and bands like that were coming through. So it was that, you know, it was that kind of show. You know, and I love doing that, too, because, see, for me, I'm a all-encompassing music guy. Just music's good. I love, you know, I love it. And I want to I want to you know, expose people to it. And in that period of time, alternative and metal and rock were both great. You know, alternatives going through an identity crisis is very different now. So I wouldn't even go there. But I'll just, you know what I mean? It's not. The same, but I mean, nothing ever stays the same, but I'm just saying like at that period of time, it was so great that, you know, bands like Metallica were like, we want you, you know, I remember them going to me, man, we want you to be our guy here. And I'm like, cool, let's do it. You know, and what great, great experiences they were. So why is that? Like, what's the secret sauce? You know, not all DJs or TV personalities you'd like get to become, you know, iconic like you are. Like, what, what's the secret sauce? Well, I think the reality is just like my, I mean, I think that the passion was really infectious. And that's the thing that I find with people all the time that I still talk to that say, you know, that not only did it make them feel all right watching me on TV to feel like, hey, I'm a little different because I love music and I care about the artists and the lyrics and this record means the world to me. And I so you know, I think a lot of people were... I kind of those people that were deep music fans, you can call them geeks, nerds, whatever you want to call them. I just call them passionate people. I think that there was a real connection with them. And I think it was also because I really loved the music and cared about it and knew it. And I wasn't just reading off cue cards like so many other people do and just reading questions that were written for me. I mean, I really dived into these artists and cared about them. And I think that that was the difference. I think people could really see the. I think they could read bull, through bullshit. And I think that they, it was a breath of fresh air for people to also see somebody on, on the screen that really cared and did his research, but passionately loved music. I mean, that's the difference. It's like, I, I think that that was the connection and why people really identified with me is because I was like that friend of theirs next door who was a music fanatic and loved rock and, 
And, uh, and I think that was part of it, but also, you know, I really cared about it from the time I was a kid. I mean, it's, I, I think the other thing that's really important is, and I can say this is MTV never tried to change me. And this is an interesting thing. I remember seeing them talking about me about it in a daily news or New York post or whatever, one of the, one of the uh, New York newspapers. And just a one quote, one of the bosses said, he goes, we just let Matt be Matt. And I thought that was one of the most beautiful things in historically thinking about that, because, you know, a lot of times you'll go into a situation like that and people will try and mold you to do a certain thing. And, you know, they let me kind of run with who I really am. I just, it's not like I got out in front of the, not in front of the camera or in front of a microphone. And all of a sudden I'm this different guy. I mean, I am the guy that you see on there. So, uh, and would see. So, and I'm very grateful for that, you know, and look, even when people are doing parodies of you, whether it's Ben Stiller or, you know, like, uh, you know, I mean, so many, I mean, I, the, the list of artists that have done imitations of me is like pretty long, but I, <laughs> I consider that pretty I mean, it's, it, I, I love it because it's like, man, you know, it's just, uh, I'm a unique guy, I guess. And, but I'm, I'm, I'm just grateful. I got to say for, for all the things that I've gotten the opportunity to do and continue to do. And, you know, you'd ask me, I did go back to MTV 2011. They relaunched 120 minutes for one year, but they couldn't figure out where they wanted to stick it on MTV two because MTV two was starting to become more of an urban channel. Like it was most of the audience was, it was geared towards, you know, uh, black and, and urban reality TV shows and and reruns of like, you know, Martin and things like that. And I think that, you know, and you know, certainly there are, that's all, there's a great audience for that. But I think it's the same reason why they many times, and I give them credit for trying. They were trying to dig, they, they were trying to put their foot back in the music thing. But they went so far away from it that there was really no turning back. But I did do that show for a year and, you know, I had a good time doing it, but I will admit that it was frustrating that they wouldn't just stick it on at one time and then stay committed to it. You know what I mean? Because there's, you know, and I think, but it, but it was, it was good. It was cool to do it for, for that one year. And then I've, you guys, I've done so much shit until probably 2015. I was still doing work for MTV and VH1 on and off for years that people didn't even know about. Like I was still doing stuff, but it was more on the side of their .com, you know, and their things like that, even though I was doing other jobs. Like one of the last really cool things that I did for MTV and with MTV, which was a great idea, which started as a .com thing. And you might remember these, but they were on VH1 Classic and they were Matt Pinfield's Rock Stories. And they were like literally cartoons. They just, they said to me, they go, you know, you, you tell great stories about like, you know, you're at the being at the Playboy Mansion or being with the chili you know, about this thing about the chili peppers or, you know, Van Halen or something like that. So they bottom line was they said, we're going to commission 10 cartoons. We're going to find up and coming animators to just we're going to record you telling your story, film it, send it to them. And that's exactly what they did. So there was a series of cartoons that they put out, which you can still find some on YouTube. Some of them, you know, there's a Nirvana one out there, Chili Peppers one, one about the Playboy Mansion. Uh, that's pretty funny where I walked in on two rock drummers, <laughs> from two heavy rock bands, having sex with two Asian bunnies on a, uh, in a back room and passed behind the game room. Cause I was trying to find a place to go to the bathroom. I mean, the stories are pretty funny. 
So I continued to do stuff with them because there were still people that were involved that wanted to do cool, creative things. But of course, they couldn't get 100% commitment. Those cartoons, I never expected to be on TV. I walked into a restaurant in New Jersey one night, right? And the waitress goes, hey, man, I saw your cartoon about this, this on TV. I saw it on TV. I go, you must be mistaken. That's, that's only online. She goes, no, it was on TV last night. So I didn't even know it was there. They started adding it to the playlist and VH1 Classic and they beat and they played the hell out of them like they used to do the metal, that metal show so that was cool and uh you know so that's my my thing there but i'm very grateful and when it comes to the mtv thing I, i'm grateful for the platform they gave me nationally uh it got me to where i am today and um you know i mean obviously i did a lot of other things right i mean i did a r columbia records and became a vp there i you know i did you know i was on a board of governors and the grammys in new york those are just it's an elected thing but you know, I did A&R, I, I did morning shows at radio stations, Sirius XM. I did a lot of different things. And, um, and I, you know, I'm just very grateful for all those things and opportunities. And I'm still going, which is the even better thing. What are you, what are you doing now? I mean, I know you still have a lot. You know, I mean, uh, I still, you know, like I've been doing this classic rock history show for Westwood One that's syndicated for 11 years. I think this is, it started in 2011. So I'm starting my 11th year this month. And that show is on a hundred radio stations in the U.S. and Canada. And it's on in like Europe. It's on every week in those, like, my friend was driving the singer, uh, you know, he was one of the singers of Unite. He was like the second singer in the Misfits, Zoli. He was in uh, Pennywise for a while, too. But anyway, he goes, I, this, he told me this a few weeks ago. It's really funny. He goes, hey, man, I was in Hungary because that's where his family's from. I was dealing with some uh, real estate stuff there with my family. I was a little pissed off. I'm driving across country. And all of a sudden, your voice comes on in Budapest. And I'm like, that's great. You know, so so I'm on the radio in Sweden, Budapest, you know, all over the place. Um, I'm so I'm still doing syndicated radio. I'm on K, uh, KLOS Sunday nights. I do a, a hard rock count and metal count, like hard rock countdown, really, uh, with some metal in it. But it's it is. Uh, I've been doing that for a year at KLOS, a show called New and Approved, where I do interviews. So I interview and all those interviews are on YouTube. So. I'll have Angus Young in there, Sammy Hagar, you know, and then newer bands like Royal Blood. You know what I mean? And so I do tons of people uh, on that show. Dave Grohl, Angus Young, like I said, there's so many. And so I've been doing that now for a year. I just started my this my this tomorrow night is a year that I've been doing a KLOS show. And uh, and then I do a bunch of other things. I do live streams. I do a lot of, you know, consulting stuff. I think I should also mention. You know, I, you know, I wrote a book that came out in 2016, uh, which was a memoir up until that period. And, and that came out through Simon & Schuster. You know, it was a, you know, a major publisher. And, and, it was, and the book's still available now as a paperback. It was a hardcover for a long time. And it's on Audible, even though it's not me reading it, because I was so busy. I had just taken a morning show job and san francisco so i didn't have time to read it people are like man why didn't you read your own book bruce springsteen did i'm like he might have a little more time at that period of time because i was like doing three radio shows and a podcast so yeah so that book's cool people want to really kind of do a deep dive it's called all these things that i've done it's named after the song the killers wrote about me brandon flower flowers wrote you know, so his uh, favorite favorite song of Matt's I learned earlier. Today. Yeah, I, I really I thought that was very surreal when I was doing my research. I was like, I remember being like obsessed with that song. Yeah. And, you know, the story behind it, if you get a chance to read the book or it's, you know, the guy who reads my story, reads my book on Audible is actually a really he does usually James Patterson's books. So he's a really professional reader. 
but you but it's also worth checking out. It's on Audible. You know, it was on books on CD, and it's. Uh, but you know, this story is pretty amazing, and it's also you can look it up um, online anytime. But you know, I was trying to sign the killers. I had flown. You know, the whole story behind the fact that while I was at Columbia Records, the U.S. Army reached out to me and asked me if I would come mentor soldiers returning from Iraq or Afghanistan that had been either wounded or were just music enthusiasts that were in the army um, that had served, whether they were wounded or not, they did a thing for them, a program in Colorado City, Colorado. Would I donate my time and fly out there? And I said, of course, I'll be of service. So I flew there and spent a whole weekend with, with these soldiers. And I mean, what I, some of it was heartbreaking. You see some of these guys that were wounded, but how music was the thing that really bonded them and just also kept giving them a spirit to keep going. It was beautiful, you know? And I went right from there. I flew to Las Vegas to try and sign the killers. And I literally, like while I was doing A&R, and I, and I literally got picked up by their old manager, their current manager, and um, they brought me to the drummer, Ronnie Venucci's parents' house. So I watched the killers doing Mr. Brightside and Smile Like You Mean It in their parents' garage. I mean, that's where they were rehearsing. It was unbelievable. They'd hardly play live yet, but I'd heard their demo. And I went, man, I heard the songs, Mr. Brightside and Smile Like You Mean It. And I was like, yeah, I got to find these guys and sign them. Unfortunately, I didn't get to sign them. We were outbid by Island Def Jam at Columbia, but I did get a great song out of it because what happened was we had dinner. Brandon Flowers drove me back to my hotel that night. It was a Monday night. And I remember we were only ones sitting at the bar at the Las Vegas Hilton and uh, with a bartender, just the three of us. You know, and he and his brother were big fans of, of mine on MTV. So they were, um, he was just asking me questions, you know, about, I told him the story about doing the thing with the soldiers. And then I also told him kind of shit what was going on in my life, you know, like, divorce and some other stuff and that then he went home that night and wrote that song and that's where that line i got so but i'm not a soldier comes from so it's pretty cool so that's that's part it's in the book but there's a lot of stuff in the book stuff about metallica david bowie u2 the ramones i mean just there's there's a there's a bunch of stuff but you know what guys i'm gonna write a second book when after i have a couple more years sober you know like i decided that uh, you know, I just turned 20 months sober, right? And it's pretty nuts because, you know, it's the longest I've ever been sober. And, and I, you know, I'm really on a, on a path to not return. But, I'm, you know, what they say it's one day at a time, whatever, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, go into that uh, too much except to say that I've been doing incredibly well and I feel great. You know, I went through a really, there will be a second book because I need to tell the story about getting hit by the car and nearly killed. We might have to have you back on, but because we only have about five minutes left. But you know, I did want to talk about that. I still in my phone have a photo of you right after the accident before you were treated, where your skull was basically ripped open to the you know, yeah. Uh, I think I think Jessica sent me the photo, and I mean, it looked like you were gonna die, dude. Oh, it did absolutely look like I was gonna die. You know, that was unbelievable. You know, I'll try to make it quick for you, but. You know, it was one of those, it was a Monday night. I was crossing the street after being at a coffee shop in a Thai restaurant. I wasn't fucked up. I mean, I was, uh, at that night, I was I was sober. And it was Monday night, 7.45 at night. I'm crossing the street and, uh, you know, it looks clear and I have to ride away. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, thank God I saw this car gunning towards me because by jumping up in the air, I probably saved my life. I mean, so much worse could have happened, but my legs snapped in half. My head went through the windshield like a bullet. I went through her. My whole body went into her windshield. She hit the brakes. I was conscious. I didn't remember going through the windshield. It happened within a split second. But I do 
The next thing I remember is I remember jumping up and then I remember spinning over the hood of her car, literally, and landing about 15 feet away. Uh, the When they found out I could feel my toes in the EMS truck, when they finally got there nine minutes later, I could have bled out if my femoral already was severed, but luckily it wasn't. They said, can you feel your toes? And I go, yes, I can. And they go, you're an absolute miracle, man. They go, we've never seen anybody survive a hit like you, let alone not be paralyzed. So that was a long road back. But that picture is unbelievable, Chris, that Jessica sent you because that picture was taken as they brought me into the emergency room. And that was it. My head was completely split open. My ear was hanging off. Uh, it was one of the most gruesome photos. TMZ, you know, blurred it out when they showed it. But TMZ were really supportive. They, they liked me. So they were saying great things. Disturbing photo. It's very disturbing. But that was, uh, I'm grateful to be alive, man. I came back, you know, I learned, I, I walked again in eight months, man. I had to go to two hospitals. I was in Cedar sinai for a while, trauma center, ICU. Then they moved me over to uh, California Rehabilitation Institute in Culver City, where you, it's, you know, like a war veteran. You're literally like living there, but you're also doing physical therapy every day. And then I, you know, but you know what a, you know what a rock music fan I am. As soon as I got out of the hospital on this walker in so much pain, I'm on a walker and I'm like going to like the Chris Cornell tribute at the forum or like going to see a rock band at like the Roxy. And they're like, Matt, oh, Matt's here. Set him in the back. <laughs> you know, it was like that. So four months to walk on a walker, four more months to walk on a cane. Eight months later, I mean, a lot has changed, man. You know, I started hiking and doing all kinds of other shit. And, you know, I haven't looked back. I see your posts. You're in the gym all the time. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. I work out all the time. You know, man, it's just about changing my lifestyle. I've been, you know, I survived a lot of insanity, but I was very grateful for it. I had a lot of fun. I don't want to, when people go, oh, you got sober. What do you think? I'm going, you know what? Look, hey, I had my, we had our moments of consequences, but I also had a lot of fun. And I don't tell other people how to live. You and I had some fun, definitely not sober moments back in the day. <laughs> they were great. And they were so much fun. And you know what? That's the truth. Here's how I look at it. It was a great time for me, but and it stopped kind of working for me. As I got older, the truth yeah. was, it was just wasn't, you know, it wasn't sustainable is I think the best way to say it. And I like to do things all the way. I'm not one of those guys, honestly, who, uh, you know, I like to put, I like to go all in. So now I just turn the page where I go all in with exercise, you know what I mean? And helping other people that are struggling. I help a lot of musicians that we know that, you know, you know, these guys' names and it's, you know, it's an anonymous program, but you know, it's, uh, I do a lot of service because, you know, I want to give back because people have been very generous and caring to me, you know, through all this, like Rolling Stone did that whole Double feature on me getting sober and Variety magazine. And uh, I got so much support and love out there that I, uh, you know, in turn, I'm giving that back to as many people as possible. But hey, man, I still like to go out with my friends that drink and have a good time. I'm not like one of these guys that goes, oh, dude, I can't, can't drink. I mean, that's not me, man. I like love being out. I'm always out going to shows. My friends are drinking and I want them. I encourage them to have a good time and to live. I don't tell anybody what to do. I uh, I just tell them to continue to rock. You know what I mean? That's the most important thing, you know? So I'm very grateful to be here. So, you know, we're going to have to end it here. I'd love to have you back on uh, and continue this conversation because I think there's so much more to it. For now, this is amazing. Thank you for spending your time with us, telling us this amazing story. I'm so glad that you're doing so great. I can't wait to see you soon. Um, I sent you a, a, a something in the mail. I don't know if you got it yet or not. Oh, I'm coming. Oh, 100%.
Awesome. You know I'm going to be there. I cannot wait uh, just to be there. I mean, can we say anything about it here? You want me to just yeah, 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 yeah. I'm getting married later this year. And- You're getting married. I'm so pumped. I'm so excited to be there, man. I've been there for your birthday parties. You've actually had dinner. You know, like you, you looked out for me and had dinners for mine. We, you know, I mean, you know what a huge fan of yours I am. And we, and I love you. We become great friends. So it's really awesome that I'm going to get to go see you get married and spend that uh, incredible experience with you. You have an amazing woman. And it's going to be going to be quite a party. It's you'll uh, (laughs) have a blast. I'm going to have fun. Like I said, my whole thing is, is people ask me, what do you think about it being sober? I'm like, dude, I have fun all the time. I go out with my friends, my friends drink the whole night. I'm like having a blast. I just, as long as we're having fun and there's, and we're rocking and I'm around great people, then I'm happy. You know what I mean? And that's what it's all about. But yeah, we just keep on going. Right. And it's really, I got to tell you, it's been great to be on here with you, Chris. It really has, you know, really, 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 really appreciate you taking the time. I know how busy you are. And uh, yeah, let's hang out soon, my man. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds great. Great, great, Chris. We'll, we'll definitely do it again soon, man. And thank you, Matt. Thank you so much, Matt. All right. So that was awesome. Thank you, everyone out there for listening to Delirious Nomads, sponsored by Blacklight Media. We will be coming back at you next week with another awesome guest. Be sure to follow Blacklight Media on socials for new music and more. And above all, keep it heavy. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.